This week, we get a bit philosophical. If a business has extra profits, how can they be fairly shared with employees and other stakeholders? Let's go. Welcome to Startup to Last, a podcast about building profitable software businesses that are meant to last. Hi, I'm Tyler. I run a bootstrap SaaS company called Less Annoying CRM. I'm Rick. I run a software-enabled services company called Leg Up Health. What's going on this week, Rick? Well, I'm, I'm having this reflection uh, on, I just got back from Bear Lake and I am thinking about uh, whether I spent my, I didn't, I took time off and like unplugged. I haven't responded to email or anything like that, but I felt guilty about it the whole time. And I think it's because I didn't feel like I had, I kind of had a rough week last week with that setback on the API vendor. And the whole time back in my mind, I'm thinking I didn't really earn my time off. And I've taken a lot of time off re- recently. Um, and so I think it sort of affected my mood and Hmm. and my ability to really unplug. So, I don't know. Do you ever have that feeling? Uh, pro- probably a little bit, but I think mine is slightly different, which is that I I don't plan time off until it's too late, and then I'm like canceling meetings and stuff like that, and that's the guilt I feel. Um, so I'm, I'm trying to be better about it by just planning like two months in advance, I'm just taking a week off and I'm like, I'm going to figure out what I'm going to do with that week later rather than uh, doing it last minute. That's actually interesting. That's probably exactly what happened with me because I had planned on Monday and Tuesday to get some serious work done. Monday and today, I should say. And we ended up staying longer than we had planned. And so I had this sort of commitment to myself of working on certain things Monday and Tuesday. And then I just didn't. But I never like sat down and said, you know what? I'm going to take this time off. I just didn't do the things and left them on the calendar. Mm. Um, and I wonder if that was what what was the problem in the back of my head. Yeah, that could be. Do Do you like track, you know, your vacation days or anything like that? I don't. Do you? Uh, yeah, I do because like the whole company, like someone else at the company does, and I we have a whole system where it's like put it on the calendar and add this. We have this one user on the calendar and it's like add that user to all your vacation days and that way like someone can go in and total it up and let everyone know how many days they've taken off and stuff um and it does take some of the pressure off because like i never use all my vacation anyway i don't think but i can see that i'm not using it or so like when i do use it i it's fine i wonder if you would be better off being like you know what i'm gonna allow myself 15 or 20 days a year or something that's really interesting i wonder if in in yeah, because it's almost like, especially recently, I feel like I've taken a lot of time off with the baby, with my dad coming to visit, with Memorial Day, and now it's July 4th, and then Utah has this special holiday in July coming up called July 24th, Pioneer Day. So I don't know. I feel like, yeah, that might be a good idea. I'm going to think about that. Yeah. Tracking my track as a solo one-person company uh, founder, um, tracking my own vacation. That's interesting. Yeah, it's a uh, part of me hates this idea because it's like all of this bureaucracy that you need at a multi-person company. Like that's one of the reasons s- solo founder type businesses can move so much faster. But if it would give you peace of mind, yeah, why not? Yeah, and the the other factor here is I think the worst thing to do is half commit to something um, because then mm-hmm. you're in two places at once. And I think if I could go replay Monday and Tuesday, I either would have stayed at the cabin and worked or gone out, not gone out and worried about why I wasn't working, you know? Yeah. So. Yeah. An unproductive day where you're still thinking about work is, is the worst. Yeah. I, I, I definitely get that. And I wouldn't say I'm great about this, but sometimes I've had success in the past where I can tell I'm going to be unproductive and I'm just like, 
yeah, I'm just going to go for a walk or go, go watch a movie. Like, I'm not going to get work done anyway. Why sit at my desk twiddling my thumbs when I could just go enjoy myself? Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks for hearing me out on that one. Yeah. What's definitely. going on in your world? Uh, I had a pretty productive start to this week. So it's Tuesday right now. Yesterday, I wrote five blog posts. Um, and normally, I try to write one per week. So I'm feeling good about that. Ooh, what were the topics? It's one of these things where I started writing one and then I'm like, well, I really need. So I was writing about freemium, but I was like, okay, I need a link to something that defines freemium. And I was looking around and I was like, why don't I just write that article? And then that ended up turning into other things. So I ended up, it just kind of spiraled out of control. Um, I'm kind of curious, or I'm thinking through like, should I do this on purpose? Um, Like rather than writing one article per week, should I just kind of binge and write a bunch all at once and then go the next, so, you know, five weeks in this case without writing anything. Do you have any thoughts on that? I'm a big fan of stacking things um, and sort of doing like, like tasks that are alike um, in a block um, and, and minimizing switching costs because you can get deeper and you can go. Um, so yeah, I'm a huge fan of this, uh, idea. Um, and it's, but, it, but what could happen, like, I guess the negative, um, side of this is you put a lot of pressure on that one day uh, mm. in terms of performance, um, instead of sort of, uh, you know, averaging it out over, um, you know, five weeks versus, you know, w- once every five weeks. So I don't know. What are your thoughts? Well, I think so. I hear the concern you brought up. One way to get around that is if you're good at this and some people are better than others is like, wait till you have, till you're just like feeling it. So rather than saying this is going to be that one day and pre-scheduling it, just be like, I feel like writing. That's what happened yesterday. I didn't set out to write five. I just was in the zone. And so I did it. If you can do that and recognize you're in the zone and crank them out, I think that's really nice. One of my concerns is that like, there is something to be said for habit building. It's sort of like you can't go get all your exercise for the year in one week and then be like, okay, I'm not exercising for the rest of the year. Am I going to like get out of shape if I stop working on this? Hmm. Yeah. It feels like there's probably a hybrid approach with this where it's, you have some sort of regular weekly cadence, but then whenever you feel like you're in the zone, you, you, you move everything else out of the way so that Mm. you can milk as much out of that, um, that moment as possible. Yeah, that makes sense. I've also been thinking maybe rather than saying, okay, I'm going to like not write anything for the next five weeks. Maybe I don't write anything for the next two weeks. And then I just keep three in the hopper for a week where I'm not feeling productive or I'm on vacation or something like that. So maybe I'll take that approach. That's good. I know exactly what you're talking about when it feels so much better when you have a couple of articles in the hopper to be able to pull forward. If you're just, you really, you want to take a week off, you're not, you're, you're down to the deadline and you don't have any, you don't want to feel that pressure. Yeah, I totally agree. Like maybe it's once it dips below a certain number, if it's three, you mm-hmm. do a binge. Yeah. The thing I, I've kind of thought about that before, but what I've struggled with was like the, the articles sort of get stale. Like all five of these are sort of related to each other and it might be a little weird to just publish one of them like six months from now, but whatever, probably no one cares about that the way I do. So whatever. And if someone really cares, they will tell you. Yeah, that's true. Um, so yeah, back to you. What, what have you been working on? Well, I, I guess you've been on vacation. <laughs> yeah, well, I did. I actually, so I did a lot of thinking because um, I was walking a lot and, um, and sitting, I, I love sitting out on, so we, we go to Bear Lake, which is this beautiful lake up 
in the northern Utah. I've talked about it before in the podcast. Um, but it, uh, I, we have a deck that overlooks the lake, and I just love sitting on the deck by myself. Sometimes people come out. There's a nice breeze that comes through. It's in the shade. And just watching, looking at the water is just super therapeutic. So I find I get my, I get a lot of thinking done um, while I'm out there. But before I left, I last week one of my goals was uh, to get the um, uh, the member stack uh, collections replaced with JSON. And after digging into member stack V1, which is what the current uh, releases. They've been working on V2 for about, I think it's like 12 months now. Um, and they haven't released it yet. V1 doesn't actually support what I want to do without me hacking member stack. Mm. So, um, because, and that's because the, the JSON object that they were allowing you to put stuff in isn't accessible, isn't accessible, um, via the backend API or via Zapier. So you can only push stuff in via the front end API, which means you have to be an authenticated user to do so. So, um, or you have to manually do it. So it doesn't solve my problem. There was a way in member stack to sort of create a field and then push JSON text strings in to uh, those fields, but that just felt a little hacky. And so I, was, I found myself going, how important is this right now? Do I really have a problem here? Not really. I'm going mm-hmm. to not work on this right now and I'll wait for member stack to release V2 and then, re- and then requeue this up. Um, so I got two thoughts on this. Yeah, go ahead. So one, that's an amazing feeling when you have this thing hanging over your head and you're like, you know what? I, the solution is to not do it at all. And it's as if you got it done, right? You get to move on to the next thing and keep going. I, I love that feeling. Two, I don't envy your platform risk. Like, what if what if member stack never releases this? This is a perfect segue into uh, I'm kind of going out of order here, but another update that I have, which is I also while I was on break, one of my big things for the beginning of this week was deciding on a co- like how to code leg up benefits. Was I going to use member stack? Was I going to use some other no code platform? Code it myself, and I've decided on Outseta for that very reason, which is I member stack's taking a while to get this out. I need to diversify. A little bit and know what my options are if member stack goes kaput. Um, mm. So Outseta is an alternative authentication platform that does a whole lot more um, that uh, basically a lot has has the same capabilities member stack has today plus some. Um, and if I can build, use that for Legup benefits, I should feel pretty good about what my options are, um, what an alternative option is for Legup health if member stack were to you know not work out in the future. Why have I never heard of Outseta before? Like, is there a downside here I'm missing? Uh, only that it's, I'm kind of using, I'm using a sliver of its functionality for leg up benefits, and it's meant to be the whole package. Um, have you, mm-hmm. we've talked about Outseta on the podcast before very briefly, but oh, okay. not, we didn't go into detail. So basically, Outseta, it has member stack functionality, but they've built it hor- like across the entire SaaS sort of, service suite so that they've got billing built in, they've got customer support um, and ticketing systems built in, knowledge center built in, a CRM built in. Um, and it's really everything you need for 25 bucks a month uh, to get going on a SaaS product, including authentication, which is what MemberStack does. I'm not like, I'm looking at their website right now. I don't see like the no code term being thrown around. Are they intending this to be used in a different way from how you're going to use it? It's it's if you did I go deeper into their documentation, no code comes up a lot. 
to get the most out of it though, it does help to be able to leverage, to know how to front uh, develop in the front end and then also leverage some of the, to really take it to the next level, some of the server side stuff. But out of the box, it you can no code your way to to it just like the way just like you would a member stack tool. There's a gotcha. little bit of JavaScript embedding stuff you have to do um, to get the the authentication working, but that that side of it works almost exactly the same as uh, as member stack. And are you, are you going to use them for billing and like I see there's a one percent transaction fee and stuff like that. You're you're kind of building the whole thing off of them. You're not just pulling off the authentication piece and using other vendors for the rest of it. So I already have everything set up for Legit Benefits except for the authentication. So there's sort of a sub de- second decision I need to make when I'm implementing. Do I want to go ahead and put everything on here um, or do I just want to use the authentication? Right now, the plan is just to use authentication. But if I find it easy to just go ahead and switch everything over to billing and it solves a problem for me, I'm going to do that. Gotcha. I don't understand exactly the positioning of Outseta here, but I would be a little nervous that you're not using it the way it's... Like they, their pricing is too cheap. I'm looking at it right now. They intend to make money off of being your subscription billing system. I would be a little worried that if you're not doing that, like they're going to pivot in some way that leaves you behind. Yeah, totally. And member stacks the same way. Their, 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 their pricing is around uh, a 3% transaction fee. And like a pal doesn't use that as well. So, um, I totally hear you agree. Um, but at the end of the day, like if their billing platform doesn't solve a problem for me, I'm not going to use it. If it did, I would use it. And so that's yeah. an incentive for them to, you know, figure out how to help me. LegUp Benefits is in a much better position to leverage their billing service than LegUp Health. That makes sense. Yeah, because customers don't ever give you a credit card for LegUp Health. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. So that was a big decision. So I guess my big commit for uh, next week... Um, is I would like to get V1 of Legup Benefits out by next Tuesday. There's I've looked through the outside of docs. There's nothing that should be a huge surprise. It should be pretty straightforward. Um, so I'd like to be kind of uh, have have a place where people can go understand what Legup Benefits is at legupbenefits.com and then sign up and enter their billing and information. Is legupbenefits.com you're using Outsider for the whole thing or using Webflow for the marketing site? So Outsider then- integrates with a third part. Like you, Outsider isn't a web flow. So you have to have a, a site where you're, or a CMS that you're hosting your site on to integrate with Outseta. And so it, I'm going to use Webflow for my site. I am going to have the application, at least to start with Legit Benefits, both the marketing website and the application on the same site. Um, and I feel okay about that. Okay. That makes sense. So it's just like MemberStack where you include a little snippet of JavaScript from Outseta on a Webflow page and you've got yourself an app. Yep. Yep. And you can extend it a little bit with some front end JavaScript, but I haven't really, that's where I think there's some, how much do I want to go into that is the question. Yeah. Gotcha. Cool. So hold me uh, accountable. If I don't show up to, uh, next week with a working Lego benefits website and pretty much done with it, uh, you can beat me up a little bit. And let's define done. So like you should be able to, I get the impression this is the main thing preventing you from diving into sales and marketing. Is that right? There's nothing preventing me from Diving or, into sales and marketing. This is the this is the one thing I want to get done before I sort of shift to sales and marketing mode on leg up health. Okay, so yeah, that's what I mean. Is like yeah. next week, what I should be able to say is, go do sales and marketing. Stop making excuses, fiddling around with stuff. Yes, one exception to that um, is the I, I did buy some time. So last week I updated on the policy API, and mm-hmm. rather than try to handle a bunch of different decisions in that one email on a deadline, I basically bought a month and said. Listen, our API vendor froze our account. We're going to review this next month. 
may reach out to you with some input. So I have I've sort of punted that decision for that you know that I need to make in July. And if I find an overwhelming feedback from my client from my client base that I need to keep that, then there's a potential that I bring that back. But that's not a huge project um, by itself. But I'm I'm pretty sure I'm going to punt on it. Something I didn't year. like push back on last week is you like. How unlikely is it that you could just get your previous vendor to reopen your account? Like, why? Why is that such a non-starter? It, there's a one is a use case um, issue where they're not they're kind of going into a more specialized use case where they're making money similar to the Outseta and MemberStack thing on transaction fees mm. for doctors' offices, and they're helping them when they're helping with, with billing patients. And so I'm way outside of that use case. And the second is they've put in some pretty significant technical questionnaires that don't apply to my situation, but that I have to pass in order to get through. Um, and so it's not out, out of the question, but it's substantially harder than just you know signing up, c- calling the guy that I've talked to in the past at other ven- another vendor and saying, I'm ready to go. Yeah, gotcha. Okay, so you've got leg up benefits in a week. That should be out of the way. There's this looming, are you going to do something with the API, uh, the thing we talked about in the episode last week? Otherwise, the indefinite future is sales and marketing. Yes. And, I, and what, I'm, what I'm thinking about doing um, is I'm kind of already itching to, to go out with people. I mentioned this in the podcast a couple of weeks ago. I'm going to start scheduling stuff um, for the afternoons. Really, like by noon, if I put in four hours of solid mental work. I'm not getting much done anyway in the afternoons. So I'm going to start filling my calendar up with some appointments mm. um, as early as uh, next week. So I actually have some for this Thursday. So I'm going to start doing that right away. I love that. That makes so much sense for you, especially like mm-hmm. I think for me, I can't predict when I'm going to be in the zone, but you're so much so much more weighted in the morning. And I think both of us feel this way that when you're in a meeting with someone your performance is like, it's not way better or way worse depending on your mood normally. I mean, you could have a really bad off day, but mostly like, I don't know, adrenaline kicks in or whatever. You can't help but be present. Whereas if you're sitting at your computer doing more knowledge worker type of work, you could have zero productivity or a thousand. It can it can swing a lot more wildly. Oh yeah. And uh, I think what I'm trying to get better at is categorizing work into this is the the, probably the most of work I'm going to be able to do on a daily basis with this is that ment- is mental work and it's four hours tops probably. And then this other stuff is this I can do when I don't have my mental, I don't have mental capacity for yeah. the other stuff. I don't, it's hard to say which ones fit in the no mental bucket, but I think there's more stuff that do, like that does, that doesn't like mm-hmm. going out to lunch with someone that seems like something you can do no matter what. Yeah. This strikes me as potentially a long-term good routine for you. Mm-hmm. Like focus on work, no, like sitting in front of your computer in the morning, going out, shaking hands in the afternoon. I feel like you could run the business almost indefinitely with that routine. I think you're probably right. Uh, well, especially now that I've got my um, morning, my workout in the morning like that. Yeah. That opens up the evenings. Like I, I didn't realize how much I was losing from in terms of flexibility in the afternoons by having, putting all that pressure on working out around five or six uh, that's mm. a huge change. Because you have to stop then. You have, oh, you have to stop what you're doing, get there. And then after you're done, it's like, you're done. You're, you're ready to go to bed. How has the workout been going? Like, as a reminder for people, this was a couple of weeks ago. I think you said you were going to wake up at, that was last week, wake mm-hmm. up at 5 a.m., exercise for 
an hour or whatever. Is that working out for you? Yeah, I got uh, three out of five days last week. Um, the fourth and fifth days. Fifth day, I was, went to Bear Lake, so that didn't count. And then the fourth day, um, I had a... See, I, there was something I had to do in the morning that uh, was a baby issue. So gotcha. um, got in the way. But yeah, I feel really good about it this week. Cool. I uh, Yeah, keep us posted on the schedule. That, what? It sounds like you're making a lot of progress from where you were. It's... I, it's one of those, I had a lot of progress from last week, but not a lot of work input. It was a lot of output, yeah. but not a lot of input. So it doesn't right. feel as good as as it should, maybe. Um, you did ask me a good question, and I wanted to take a minute to define it. You said, what is done? Um, and I, I want to clarify what that is. Um, it is, if you, you know, a, a prospect should be able to go to leg up benefits, get a good understanding, a solid understanding of w- whether it's for them and what um, what it does, as well as pricing information, and then either request a demo or sign up. Um, sign, I'll put sign up and enter billing information as a stretch, um, but uh, at least request a demo. Gotcha. Cool. Cool. I like it. What? Uh, back to you. You mentioned you liked sitting on the uh, the porch at Bear Lake. Yeah. Uh, I've actually had a kind of similar moment. So, like, I'm not used to having outdoor space. Like, I bought this house last September. So I've been here for a while now, but I still don't think I'm like used to it. I'm used to kind of big apartment in the city type of thing. Um, the last, like this, the last two days, since I haven't been going into work because Monday and Tuesday are remote days and I haven't had any meetings this is my only thing on my calendar, this podcast in the last two days, which has been amazing. I gotten so much work done, but I just went outside and like worked outside until it got too hot, which is like maybe 10 30, 11 AM. And it's just like, it's amazing. <laughs> I've just really enjoyed it. Uh, so I, I know where you're coming from with that sitting on a porch thing. It's awesome. Do you have uh, outdoor space at your like normal residence? Yes, but we have an elm bug issue, which is this weird Idaho-based bug that's made it into Utah, I think. And uh, it makes sitting outside in July impossible because they're, it's an infestation. Like huh. bugs are all over you. So we have a great back porch that's got great tree cover. And even if it's, you know, 80, 90 degrees outside, it feels pretty good, but uh, not right now. Is there any end in sight for that? Or it's just like, Uh, well, we can never go outside again. It's big drama right now at the, uh, (laughs) at the townhomes that we're in. So, and we're, there's like a, a, really the people who get hit worse are in the units towards the back of the complex, which is where we are. And our neighbors and us are just like, we are in a in a war with the bugs right now um it is bad and there's nothing to be done yeah so i want to um amend slightly a complaint i made i i kind of was complaining about how how much i hate the ipad when i got it a few weeks ago um i still think it's a stupid device and i'm mad at apple but i've actually found that's the device i'm using when i'm sitting outside in the morning specifically i really like it as a writing device And the reason is it's such a worthless operating system. You kind of can't multitask effectively on it, meaning there's a lot less distraction. And the Magic Keyboard, which again, I was complaining about, I mostly hate it. It's super heavy. I I don't like it, but it's good enough of a keyboard. You can actually type pretty effectively on it. So I've actually, like when I wrote five blog posts, I was mostly sitting outside with my little iPad uh, and I couldn't get distracted because it's so bad at doing other stuff. (laughs) It created focus for you. Yeah. Yeah. I was just in Notion typing for, you know, pretty much all day. So anyway, I, I found my use case. Is there a Notion uh, iPad specific app that works pretty well? Or were you on the, were you logged in on a browser? I was using the app. Um, my experience is almost every iPad app is just the iPhone app, but bigger. 
And mostly it works, but sometimes that's kind of a pain because like there might be things like the iPad, the, the, the new iPads have a mouse, like a cursor, but a lot of the apps are for iPhones where you don't. And so they don't really take advantage of the mouse very well. Uh, but it, it it's probably better than the website since you can't have a good web browser on iOS either. That's cool. No, that's, thank you for, for that update. Um, I actually found my iPad this past weekend and it has been converted to the new baby monitor. Oh, nice. Like you just carry it around with you if you're, you know, it's got outside the, or it's whatever. got the video on it. And yeah, so yeah, that's cool. It, and it's better than having your phone because now you can use your phone for other things instead of watching yeah. the baby. That, yeah, and you're not using your battery and stuff. Mm-hmm. I've also, by the way, been playing. Uh, I found that Civilization Six is on the uh, Apple App Store, and I've been playing that on my iPad too, which I've been enjoying. What is Civilization? I feel like I saw this a tweet about this recently, and I had no idea what it was. Oh, is this is one of like game? the it's one of the classic video games. Like we're on six now, but Civilization One was from maybe like the very first version of Windows or something. It was like a pretty old game. Um, so I've played, I don't know, Civilization two, three, four, or something as a kid, maybe. What um, what is is the gameplay like? Starcraft? What is like? It's Warcraft? Uh, it's turn based, but and oh. it's it's kind of like empire building. So like you have a city, and then you can like send a settler out to build another city somewhere else, and it's like kind of a resource allocation type of game. Um, I've been I've been enjoying it. So yeah, anyway, I've got a second use case for my iPad now. I. I'm typing, uh, doing writing, and I'm playing video games, having a good time. <laughs> one is productive, one is not. Yeah, although uh, I'm sitting on the couch playing video games instead of watching TV, so it's arguably a little more engaging than what I would have been doing otherwise. That's totally true. Uh, yeah. So another thing um, I've, I, I kind of mentioned I've had a lot of time this week to actually work on normal work and not just sit in meetings, and I've kind of gotten into some design stuff, which is always reinvigorating. I feel like every every few months I say this on the podcast from like I stopped designing and then I started again and I feel good. Um I'm starting to like come to terms more with the fact that like this isn't something I want to delegate really just cuz I enjoy it so much. I I do want to one day work with another designer because there are certain things I'm not great at like I don't think I make really nice visual design but I I like the UX side of things. Uh but I I think like you hear this advice all the time, this kind of conventional wisdom of, you know, it's a founder's job to to replace themselves, to make themselves obsolete. And for a venture-backed startup where you're, you know, doubling or tripling headcount every year, I think that's true. But I'm just like, no, I don't want to replace myself here. I like this work. Um, so yeah, I just wanted to say that. And also I've been thinking, should I try to get better at design if I'm not going to hire a professional to replace me? Like, should I go take a class or something? What do you think about that? The idea kind of excites me because I think I'm like 95% of the way there. But um, in terms of, you know, I said I'm not a good visual designer. That's probably what I would want to work on is being better at that. I don't think I'm way off, but you can just tell the difference. Like the, the design standard is so high now because every tech company has all these professional designers. You can tell the difference between someone who's 90%, 95% versus 100. I feel like if I... I don't know how to learn this, I guess. That's my problem. And it might be innate. Like maybe I just don't have the talent, but I don't know. Have you heard of any good ways to learn design? I've I've read Refactoring UI, which I love, but like what's the next step beyond that? You know, this is this is so far out of my wheelhouse that it's hard for me to, to give advice, but it feels like if you found uh, someone maybe on Twitter that was 
really, really good at this. I'd be surprised if they didn't have a course um, mm-hmm. that they ha- offer much or that they recommend to, to help that, that helped them get to where they are. So maybe, maybe you start with just identifying some really good visual designers that you respect and mm-hmm. just talking to them about where, where they, um, how, how they've gotten better. Maybe it is innate, but it seems, I don't know. It feels like this feels like something that if you have a pretty solid goal of what you want to get better at, you should be able to find a way to get better at it with practice um, and with some coaching. So yeah. um, I love this idea personally. Cool. Yeah. Well, so if any listeners out there have anything to recommend, I'd also be somewhat interested in like one thing I've dabbled with the idea of is hiring kind of like a freelance designer, but hire them as a coach for me rather than to just do the work directly for themselves. Maybe that wouldn't appeal to anybody, but um, I don't know if anyone knows anyone or has any resources to recommend. I'm all ears here. Um, all right. So do you have anything else on your list or can we dive into like a bigger topic? I, I, lo- I love this bigger topic idea. Okay. So this kind of came up in the, I mentioned a week or two ago, we had the leadership team meeting, um, which is kind of a timed, it's like a, it was a four hour meeting. It's a time to like really dive deeper into big topics. One of the topics from there, we didn't, we like advanced, but did not get a resolution. And so now I'm taking it to group brainstorming, which is when I meet with three random other people at the company. So we talked about it last week in group brainstorming. I'm going to talk about it tomorrow in this week's group brainstorming with a different set of three different people. So anyway, I'm talking about this with a lot of people. Um, The topic is basically how to allocate or how to share extra money with people in a kind of fair and equitable way. Can I just ramble for a bit and give some background on where Lessening Serum has been? Sure, that'd be Um, great. Okay, so we have this concept. I wrote a blog post about it not that long ago called the thriving wage. And the idea is it's it's like the living wage, which is like the amount of money someone needs to get by. But the thriving wage is the amount of money someone needs to thrive, to like travel and have hobbies and raise a family and buy a house, all that stuff. And we want to pay everyone that thriving wage regardless of, you know, the quote unquote value they bring to the company. So like a janitor, maybe technically we could get away with paying the minimum wage, but we should pay them the thriving wage because we can afford to. That's the basic premise. Some people uh, make need to make more than the thriving wage because that's what the market determines. Like a really, really good software engineer just makes more than what our thriving our thriving wage right now is. You start at fifty five a year and get up to one hundred and twenty five. A good developer needs to make more than one hundred and twenty five. Yeah, to be competitive, um, right? And so that you can retain the talent. Your thriving yeah. wage for some positions is more than the competitive position, but in other positions it's, it's less and you have to make up the difference. I'm assuming. Yeah, exactly. So if, if you're, we have this idea of the market rate. So if your market rate is less than the thriving wage, you get the thriving wage. If your market rates more than the thriving wage, you get your market rate, but you don't get more than your market rate. So the idea is like, if we have an extra hundred thousand dollars to spread around, we don't give it evenly to everybody. We give it to people who are the lowest paid. We raise the thriving wage if your market rates above that, you're already thriving. You know, you're the, the capitalism has treated you well. You know, you don't need any more. Um, so that's the basic premise here. For a long time, like since we, we kind of came up with this idea maybe three years ago, since then we've always kind of thought maybe the goal is as we become more and more profitable as a business to increase the thriving wage with extra surplus money that we have such that the thriving wage grows to the point where everyone's making the thriving wage, right? Where like it eclipses whatever the highest paid employee would otherwise make and everyone's making the same. That was kind of the idea. 
and it was basically just the idea of fairness and like i i want everyone to be happy regardless of whether they're the best software engineer in the world so why not recently this has been called into question uh by actually w- one of our employees who's on the thriving wage it's so i'm always so impressed when people kind of speak out against their own interests to help other people but basically someone pointed out uh you know what? The thriving wage is already $125,000 a year in St. Louis, which is a low cost of living city. They're like, what, if the point of this is to allow people to thrive, wouldn't it be better to hire more people rather than further enrich the people who are already being overpaid working here? That was the point that they made. Um, so let me pause. First of all, any questions about context? Second of all, any reactions to that point? It's a, So... I think maybe dive in a little bit more to how the thriving wage works for a new employee. You start mm-hmm. at some amount and then it it sort of grows. I don't I think that's unclear yeah. and then I can give you my reaction after that. Sure. So the thriving wage uh, and I I should say this is 100% uh, arbitrary. This is just based on what we could afford when we set it. It's not like there's like this is the perfect amount, but we start new hires at a minimum of $55,000 a year uh, and give them $10,000 raises every year for their first seven years until they're at 125, at which point they get cost of living. All of this kind of, it's built into increase for inflation and stuff. But that's the basic idea is you kind of go from 55 to 125 over your first several years, and then you kind of cap out there. Um, okay. So in the, in the, the question being posed here is, what should be the priority? Increasing the thriving wage or increasing the number of people at the company receiving a thriving wage. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, man, I, this is so far outside of my, like... <laughs> Early stage founders are not worrying about yeah, this problem, yeah, I don't yeah. think. Yeah, <laughs> so if it... This, this question wouldn't be the reason that I start a company, so it's hard for me to answer. Um, I feel like this is a very personal question to, to yeah. you your, your co-owner, um, your management team and the people at the company, very personal. Uh, and I I don't know how you choose between those two things. It feels like something that it's no, no, no direction is right. Neither direction is wrong. Um, I don't know, which makes me go sort of, why not do both? Yeah. Okay. So Let's set some ground rules here. I, 100% I agree with you. There's no right or wrong answer. It is very personal. I don't think very many companies have this concept of a thriving wage to begin with, so they wouldn't even face this dilemma. But I do think, especially founders of calm companies like the ones we're running, they want to enrich themselves. You and I both want to make money off of this. But most founders like us are not trying to like 100% maximize shareholder value here. And so you do share want to share wealth with customers, employees, your surrounding community, whatever. So I think like even if this exact situation doesn't come up, people are probably going to deal with similar things. And then, yeah, you said like you probably need to do both. A hundred percent. The answer to every question like this is balance, I think. Um, the hard thing is what I don't want to do is not have a framework for this and just every year be like, well, there's some money. I'm just going to decide on the fly what to do with it. I prefer having some kind of framework. This, this is what how the thriving wage began, right? As we were like, let's pay everyone well, 
But it was just kind of like, well, what does well mean and who's deciding and when should it go up? And so we just put this system in place where it's like, okay, now we have guidelines to follow. And if we need to make exceptions to it, we can. That's kind of what I'm hoping to come up with here is just like a framework. Yeah. It feels to me (laughs) that if the thriving wage is sufficient, then Mm -hmm. that box is checked. If it's not sufficient, then that box is not checked. And then the framework is if thriving wage box is not checked, increase thriving wage. Otherwise, mm-hmm. invest in more people. How would you go about defining sufficient? Oh, man, this is so subjective. <laughs> um, I, I yeah. don't know. Uh, it feels like you've got an ideal lifestyle that you want to provide people. Um, mm-hmm. And maybe there's some formula for the ideal lifestyle that you imagine for someone. And that adds up to some amount of money based on yeah. the cost of kind of a bottoms up calculation. Okay. So that. you could kind of index it on, well, what's the cost of housing? Like, you know, if you're making this much money over this period of time, can you afford a nice house? Can you go on vacation stuff like that? Mm-hmm. I think we're probably there. Like it's only pretty recently actually that my personal salary has gone over 125,000 a year, which is the thriving wage. So I can speak from experience. Like I've lived a pretty comfortable life. Now, then again, I don't have kids or anything. Um, but kids, okay. change, kids change things. Yeah. Do you have a, is there like, you've read a bunch of books and stuff, you know, when, when you're expecting Oliver, like, is there kind of conventional wisdom on like what a kid costs? <laughs> totally. I mean, again, like I think there are people who would say a kid costs nothing. Um, and you know, cause they, they live differently. Um, it's not plus one, like it's not Sable and Rick plus one. It's like, there's a little bit more, you know, costs across the board. I'd say like 33% increase so far. Okay. But we're not paying with this. That's not private school. Um, that, that's not factoring in college. Um, that these are this day to day. This is like how much it costs to, for baby supplies, food, yeah, food, you know, <laughs> yeah. Extra space that kind of thing. Okay. That's interesting. So we're probably, I mean, yeah, I, we're just talking here. I don't, it's not like I have my calculator out and I'm doing math, yeah. but I bet. The, and I, the could top, be do- I could be totally wrong on this. This is just a gut feel. Yeah. I've read before it costs a million dollars all in per, per kid. Obviously, it's super depends on all kinds of things, but wow. Uh, anyway. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. So where we are probably is like a very, very comfortable lifestyle for someone who especially, you know, uh, what's the term? Dink, dual income, no kids. Uh, very, very comfortable for that. And probably like still fine if you have kids and if you're a single parent, but like not like over the top comfortable in that situation is probably where we're at right now. Anyway. Okay. So that's adequate. Yeah. And, and and I want to go back to something. It, it, Having a there's there's what is the point of trying to have everyone on a thriving wage versus mm-hmm. pay someone market rate? Is it so that everyone gets paid the same amount and you feel good about that? Like what is there any point to increasing the thriving wage once it's sufficient? Yeah, this is okay. Let's go deep here. Let's yeah. let's get philosophical. Um, let me ask that question differently. Why don't I take all the money for myself? Right. That's that's a similar question, right? It's a, it's a, it assumes that, well, it's, it's, it, it's very narrow in terms of the use of the, of what, of the money. Um, yeah. But yeah, sure. Let's go, let's play that game. Why don't you take it all for yourself? And like, I think it's some 
weird sense of responsibility for the well-being of others. And yeah, so I, I think we have a bunch of stakeholders. We only have two technical shareholders, me and my brother, but we have, you know, employees and customers and the community, I think, are the main groups of stakeholders. And I feel like the need to balance, like if we're creating wealth, I feel like that wealth should be shared in a somewhat proportional way with with all of these groups. So 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 why why there are good ways to, there are other ways to do that above and beyond mm-hmm. the thriving wage such as a profit sharing plan mm-hmm. um, or uh bonuses um annual bonuses Yeah yeah okay so, let's let's yeah, dive so, into each of these. Yeah. Okay so we used to have a profit sharing plan and technically we still do for our early employees like the way it was written it's never going to trigger I have to personally make 1.1 million dollars a year for them to ever get anything and I'm never going to pay myself that much so but technically we do have one still. Um why did we switch from that to a thriving wage? Because that, that all happened at the same time. We kind of so first of all, I was talking to employees and I was planning on increasing the profit share or like changing the profit share because I was like, you're never gonna get anything. We need to adjust it so you will get something. And the feedback I kept hearing was like they didn't care. Like I think their order of opinion is the number one thing they want is health benefits paid for. The number one, two thing they want is salary, which is just nuts to me, by the way. I cannot believe that, like, it's just money either way, whether it's health. Anyway, you, you agree with me, I know. Uh, and then that was it. They were like, if, if you give me more profit share, I don't care, basically. Um, and we were, like, giving offers to new employees, and we had to, like, explain how it worked and stuff like that. And it was just like, at the end of the day, we're giving money to people. If we just pay them more as salary, they will value that higher. Like they'll be more likely to accept the job than paying them less and be like, but you'll also get some mystery amount as in the form of profit share. Additionally, the profit share ended up disproportionately rewarding early employees, which I think is like a lot of people view that as a feature. Like you want to do that. And when you're in startup mode and you're trying to attract people you couldn't otherwise afford, that makes sense. But when you have enough money to just hire people, like why is it that someone who joined two years earlier like deserves to be happier or something like that, you know? But isn't that how your thriving wage works as well? Um, they, someone who joined two years earlier has gotten two extra years of raises, but they're all on the same trajectory versus like a tradi- traditional uh, startup stock options or equity or whatever. It's like, if you didn't join at the right time, you can never make that back. Like you're never an early employee again. Yep, yep, yep. So I'm not saying that's right for everyone, but I do think like the calm company model should like you hear a lot of talk about profit sharing. I think you should consider why why is profit sharing better than just raising people's salaries? Well, one reason is that it's flexible. Um, so it, it it takes into account how well the company is doing at peri- different periods and times. Mm-hmm. However, often you trigger the profit sharing, whether it's annually, every five years, you can do it on different increments. Um, whereas like, when you give, it's, I think you know this. When you give someone a raise, taking it away mm-hmm. is really, really difficult. So there's, there's limited upside in increasing the thriving wage above it being necessary, right? Um, and, or it being sort of the box checked, and a, and a whole lot of risk. Um, I'm going to push back. I I 100% agree with that in theory, and I was thinking that myself. This also really relates to bonuses. Like, why don't you just give bonuses rather than base salary? Again, one reason is I don't think people view bonuses because it's not guaranteed. I don't think they like it's not as appealing to get someone to work there. But 
I forget where I, if it was a book or a blog post or whatever, apparently a fair amount of research has been done on this and very, very quickly employees start to count on whether it's profit share bonuses or salary. Um, a lot of companies have expected bonuses. And when you take that away, employees get every bit as mad as they do when you take away salary. That's my understanding of how the dumb human brain actually works. I mean, it doesn't surprise me. Yeah. Now, I like, I actually like your idea of only do profit share every five years. That's very interesting because there's no way there's like anything longer than a year people probably won't count on. And the less predictable it is, the less people will count on it. So if I were to, to go back to profit share, I would like really surprising people with it and then going cold for a long time is an interesting way to get around that problem. Yep. Yep. You, you did kind of hint to a, an advantage of increasing the thriving wage and that being recruiting, mm-hmm. being able to offer a customer service rep that's a, a stellar customer service rep who's making 50K, $125,000, $150,000 to, to move to less than the you know, CRM. That's a pretty significant recruiting advantage. Yeah. Uh, yes. As, and especially in a city like St. Louis, I don't think it's that hard to just be like, oh, we, we are the best employer. Like mm-hmm. every other company is, you know, only wants to pay you the very smallest amount they can. And we're just paying you 50% more than that. Do you have a recruiting problem to solve right now, though? No, yeah, especially not. So the the people that are hard to recruit are the developers because it is such a competitive market for developers. It's yeah, we've never, I don't think, lost a customer service hire because we weren't paying enough. Hmm. So this gets back to your earlier question of why even do this? Like why pay more? And it's kind of just well, the money's there. We got to do something with it. But there's but there's a there's this thing called savings um, mm-hmm. and ensuring against downside and uh, like. I mean, if you ask the team members, like, let's say we just saved this and didn't do anything with it and sort of guaranteed an annuity, like add more more of a guarantee to the thriving wage annuity over time. And you had like a runway metric um, mm-hmm. on ca- ca- like pure cash runway metric. That would be sort of a an interesting thing that's probably even more valuable. Like their job could go away right now. Like, yeah, something bad could happen. You know, okay. and, 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 and what if you had, what if you could say, if the worst case scenario happened, we have this insurance fund over here of pure cash that will pay all of our salaries for X months and growing uh, so that we would have time to figure out what we're going to do in the in a worst case scenario. I think that's a great idea. And we had a similar thought when, the, if you remember, I think we talked about this a little bit when the pandemic started, We we had already kind of, we had recognized this and started putting it in place, but we weren't saving aggressively enough. And so we shifted everything around and now it's like built into the financial model every month based on whatever our growth was last month, my spreadsheet pops out a number and is like, you have to put this much money in the account. And uh, we've significantly increased the amount of savings we have over the last year, year and a half because of that. At what point, so this goes back to that balance thing. So like, you don't like, there comes a point where you're paying employees enough. There comes a point where like, I feel too greedy as the owner and like, I don't want to extract all of it myself. There comes a point where you've saved enough. How, I don't know if you remember that conversation. So maybe you know the answer to, that we came up with, but how would you say, well, when do we have enough savings? That's a good question. I don't know. What, what's, what was your answer to this? What we came up with was we want two months of revenue, not expenses. I don't know. It's, it's very arbitrary, but two months of revenue is easy to measure uh, in the bank at any given time. The idea being it, it's, very hard to imagine our revenue goes to zero 
like it might get cut in half or something in a recession. Going to zero would be pretty hard to imagine. So probably we get four, five, six months in the worst case scenario there. What was in my head was imagine 20 years worth of savings in that bank and a go to zero scenario. That's a pretty awesome, safe job. It's safe, but isn't that the opportunity cost of just having that money sitting there seems extreme. Sure. <laughs> but yeah, uh, okay. And and actually, when we announced this, employees, from what I could tell, were very happy. Like, we, we could have, like, because we got that PPP money, which, you know, technically went to employees, but that allowed us to save a different pile of money. Um, that is one of the reasons why we were able to catch up our savings so quickly. And employees, I think, were like, I'm glad you're saving that and not paying that out. I think to a certain extent, they liked that peace of mind. But... Yeah, where's the threshold where where you hit the thriving savings, you know, yeah. <laughs> you know, Mark, I don't know, but it does feel like there, that's a place like if you don't need to hire new, more people because you don't have a, a role for them and you don't need to increase the thriving wage. I mean, I want to hire more people. I okay. Well say. then go hire. It seems like you need to hire more people. <laughs> yeah. Especially in sales, especially if you can get more customers. Right. We don't, we don't have a good proven way on sales and marketing. I hear you on that. Uh, we're working on that. That was, I think when we set kind of new year's goals, one of my goals for this year is get to the point where we know how to hire, like we're hiring a marketing person would help. But what we do know how to do is make the product better. Mm -hmm. And like at the very least that makes customers happy. Like whether that leads to any business, business results or not, it definitely like creates welfare in the world mm -hmm. and probably indirectly it, it grows the business. Yep. So your opinion is as long as the thriving wage is like actually genuinely enough that people can thrive in St. Louis with that, there shouldn't be much incentive. And we we could productively hire people. There shouldn't be much incentive to continue increasing the thriving wage. Yeah, I can't think of it. So I think we're nearing an end here, but let me just continue extending this a little. That from the standpoint of what's best for the business, no question you're, that I agree with that. There's no question that Hiring more people rather than lighting money on fire is going to be better. But is there, if not that I think I have any legal obligation to anyone else, but if there, if I do feel this weird sense of guilt that I'm like, well, I'm getting not rich, rich, but like wealthier. Why aren't the employees raise the thriving wage? So, but but this goes back to the original concern, which was that actually, you know, at least one employee was of the opinion sharing the thriving wage with more people is actually both is more equitable in addition to being better for the business. Then hire someone. Yeah, I, I know. <laughs> I'm just talking through it. <laughs> I mean, it feels like you have a framework where it's like, if the, you know, question number one, is thriving wage legit? Check. Do we have enough savings? Check. I feel like the savings could be a much larger number to get to a, a place where the thriving wage is even more impactful because it's sort of secured. Um, given a worst case scenario. So I think there's an opportunity for you to sell that and think about it a little bit more past the two months of go to zero thing. Do you have a, do you have a number in mind by any chance? I don't know. I think you need to talk to your people and go like, let's just say, let's walk through a scenario. How much time would, we, would you want to know that your paycheck was guaranteed if, if the worst possible scenario happened? We lost all of our customers. And I bet that that's probably a number of months, maybe a year. Do you might guess? Yeah. We sort of dealt with this when, like, when the pandemic hit, and we had two bad months, and we were getting ready for a lot worse. We kind of looked at it, and actually, 
without any savings, we could extend our runway like significantly because if everyone is, for lack of a better term, overpaid, we're just like temporarily, if we have to, we're all going to reduce our salaries and still be making plenty. We actually, I I know two months doesn't sound like a lot. I think we could get through some real shit. Uh, Yeah, sure. But what if you could say you could get through 12 months of shit without having to reduce any salaries? Yeah. And it's, that's like a far off thing. So I'm just, there's something okay. to do there. I think that you, I don't, I just don't know how valuable it is to people. It wouldn't, to me, I'd be like, give me the money. Like, right. Yeah. I, I so I, it's it's like <laughs> totally different. Um, then it's like, go hire people. Yeah. That box is checked and that box is checked. Let's go hire people or okay. pay out a, a, a surprise bonus to people. And maybe that's, maybe, I, maybe if the hire people box is checked, it's like, let's distribute some money. Mm-hmm. Let's do a five year distribution. Okay. Yeah. This is more or less where I'm landing as well. Um, it's about that balance, but I, th- I think, I think that's a good framework. Thanks for talking through that with me. Of course. It's a f- cool problem to have. And man, your team members have, I don't think they have any idea how lucky they are because many of them are working at their first job. Um, <laughs> but they, they should, I mean, this is, this is a very unique, uh, employer, um, sort of arrangement, employer, employee arrangement that, um, hopefully people really appreciate. I appreciate that. And I agree, but it, it also goes both ways. We talk a lot on here about trust and how it goes both ways. Loyalty goes both ways. They are in a unique situation that I'm worrying about them in this way, but the reverse is true too, where I brought this to group brainstorming last week and it was three people all on the thriving wage. All three of them said, don't raise the thriving wage. I make enough. And so I feel very lucky to work with people who also feel... So anyway, it's, it's yeah, a love yeah. fest all around. It's a yeah. love, 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 love fest. <laughs> well, we got anything else? Uh, no, I think that's it. So the real question is, where are you going to spend the money? I mean, Vegas is what <laughs> I think we just decided, right? <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, if you'd like to review past topics and show notes, visit startuptolast.com. See you next week. See ya.